about architecture and landscape from the Kingston School of Art in London. My name is Andrew Clancy. In this episode, we sit down with John and Sheila of O'Donnell and Toomey Architects. Um, They have a link with the school here uh, via Sheila's involvement as an external critic to our PhD by practice programme, but also as people who have been generally supportive of my work, but also the culture of architecture in places such as Kingston. They have a clear tradition of believing that the meaning in architecture is manifest in the finished work. And this has informed both their teaching and their very experienced teachers, most particularly in UCD in Dublin, where they've just retired, but also in their built work, which, since they set up their practice in the late, eight, late 80s, has traced a clear conversation, an internal critical conversation between uh, materiality, form, landscape, memory, and also the graciousness of human inhabitation. In this conversation, we tease out what might be seminal moments in their work and their reflections as they look back on their career in UCD and look forward to the next chapter. I do hope you enjoy the conversation. Thanks, John and Sheila, for agreeing to sit down with us in Register and to talk about your practice and your life. And it's an interesting time to meet because, well, I suppose we come to the stage where there's two schools of architecture live in your thoughts, one that you've just stopped teaching in. At UCD, and one that you've just won. So you've won this competition to design a school of architecture in Liverpool. And so this connection with schools of architecture seems like a good place to start. Yes. Um, as you say, we just finished teaching in UCD last week, and we obviously spent a little bit of time thinking about that leading up to the, the, the event that was held for to mark our, our um, retirement. And I suppose... When we came back from London in the early 80s, both of us went straight into teaching in UCD. So UCD architecture has been there throughout our professional career as independent architects since we, since we came back from being employed in London. And in a way that our whole lives have been marked out against the rhythm of UCD architecture. And it almost feels like it's just normal. That's the way things are that you teach and you practice both all every year I mean, we've always taught we never didn't teach so we're having to adjust to a sort of new reality that probably will just hit us when next september comes and we're not going into ucd whereas at the moment it's just normal because it's the end of year anyway um, but i would say for us teaching has been really important teaching as a way of continuing a parallel conversation about architecture which doesn't depend on what the projects you're working on in the office are or what the subjects you're being asked to look at are, but in a way you can broaden out yourself by setting topics for students. Um, and I think we will hope to continue teaching in different ways by doing crits or going to other places to teach studios. Um, because I think we it's part of critical practice is that you're teaching and talking. Mm. I mean, there's this thing that I'm reminded of but when you both started teaching, there was an essay that John wrote about forms in the Irish landscape. And you wrote that introduction to the exhibition of Rossi. Mm. And one of the things you picked out was on the wholeness of the buildings and of the images, that they weren't elemental and systematised yeah. things, that they were complete and kind of, if you chipped them in a way, they'd stay the same. And this, they seemed like two ways of coming at form those essays 
and I'm just interested then when you're starting to teach, have there been moments where the teach the taught students have helped you open up new ways of looking at that same question? Or has that been something where you've been sort of leading the students or the question was about your essay. It was about your it's essay. It's about too. both of them, yeah. <laughs> yeah, um, I think we would be Obviously, you use the time you're teaching to continue a conversation that's going on in your own head or between ourselves or between us and other colleagues. On the other hand, I think we're always also conscious of not trying to be proscriptive and not leading students into making work which is like our work or would never have thought we were teaching in a kind of masterclass situation where they're meant to be working with us. But I am... Yes, I would say that the... It is one of the parts of your life where you're consciously having discussion and actually being forced to think. And even if you find, you know, in order to, to discuss work with students, you need to really clearly um, articulate what you feel about it. And I suppose, um, while not wanting people to make the kind of work you're making, if students are going in a direction which might think is less meaningful, you would certainly discuss it. So that probably brings up the issue of form and Say in the early years of our teaching, we often set projects in either small Irish towns or mm. in the landscape because that was a subject that was very much on our minds about how to make... Because we, we perceived a certain kind of form we felt in vernacular Irish buildings, both in the countryside and in towns, which were simple and plain and plainer and... Uh, in a way, having lived five years in England, I think we found that we could... Coming back, we could see the difference between Irish and English vernaculars, which we hadn't really been aware of before, that the Irish tends to be plainer, mm. to not, not have it much decoration, to have, you know, not very articulated eaves, you know, very sort of surface um, condensed forms. Mm. And that's something we talked about a lot in those days of our early teaching. And interestingly, the presents we were given by UCD Architecture last week were two really beautiful photographs taken in 1979 of, uh, I think, an unknown, we don't know what town, of an Irish town with kind of plaster, beautiful photographs, mm. exactly um, articulating or unarticulated, uh, articulating those unarticulated buildings um, which we spent so long talking to the students about. Yeah, um, yeah, they're beautiful photographs that we were given. And the, it's the same road crossing from two different points of view, which is really <laughs> appropriate. Yeah. I guess, I mean, I suppose our generation, one of the duties of our generation, or what we felt was our duty, was this feeling that, to remind everybody that there wasn't a gap between what architecture, the usefulness of architecture now, compared to the usefulness of old buildings, you know. Mm -hmm. Because I think we sort of grew up in the state of mind, or the state of, uh, you know, the inducted, the induced state of mind that... um, history was over there and we were here and we had new problems and they had and they were frozen in the past and so that you know essay that you're talking about that I wrote images of the past was really to try to bring everything into the present tense I think we thought that was our mission you know? mm. um, there was an element of nostalgia definitely in that as there is in those two photographs because the sort of what we were calling the background has become overtaken by time and it is no longer really the background. Yeah. The background has changed because um, there's been so much development in our in our short lives against that background that it's hard to call it, you know, such a stable background anymore. But we thought we were re we thought we were re noticing uh, an unnoticed 
continuity. And we thought that was our job. Yeah. And I think we taught that view, you know, consistently, consistently, which is just look around you, look what's around you, learn from what's around you, draw from what's around you, mm. build on what's around you, start again on the basis of knowing what's around you. So we were trying to say that knowing about the past doesn't limit you to repeating the past, but there's a context for everything. Mm. It, it <laughs> I don't know if I've changed that opinion since I started. I don't know. I'm yeah. sure we've changed emphasis. Yeah, I think so. I mean, I remember, because we used to talk then about, you know, the, about <coughs> excuse me, Irishness, you know, the Irishness of Irish architecture and finding this thing. But I think that was just, as many things are, a kind of stepping stone or something that just in order to focus our minds on trying to steady down. Maybe when we left London, it was in the middle of the kind of uh, postmodernism was really thriving and there was a kind of, um, not an antagonism, but there were definitely opposites. There was the kind of high-tech guys and the postmodern guys. And we felt coming back here, we could sort of pull away from all that and just try to clear our heads and... And then looking at these amazing, you know, tower houses in the landscape and barns with curved roofs and incredible flat plastered houses in Irish towns allowed us to kind of breathe in some fresh air and think about things that were stripped back to their basics. But then, you know, maybe in the last five years, someone would say, well, talk to me about the Irishness of Irish architecture. And I think, no, I don't, I don't, I don't think that's what it's about. I think it's more about... Uh, understanding the place that you're working in, any place, and looking at a place very closely. And I suppose we feel now that having looked very closely at our own place and learned how to interpret and um, represent it, that we could bring that same kind of thinking to any other place. Mm. So rather than trying to say we want to actually look at it and then reproduce it, we're saying we want to look at it and understand it and take the lessons that we think can be learned from it and then move on with those lessons. Uh, so I think we're, you know, I think some of the earlier work we did would, would be more literally um, comparable with the tradition out of which it came or from by which it was influenced. Whereas I think in our more recent work, we, we've, well, we have always been moving away from that literalness of um, of reference, which is why when someone says, you know, tell me what's Irish about your work, I think, well, it's not, it's, it is place specific, but that's maybe we keep expanding what we mean by place as well. The definition of place, which isn't just a physical observation, but it's also brings in all kinds of social historical aspects of understanding. You know, when you're doing a project, you're thinking about the combination of its site and it's the history of its site and the history of its client, and that there's a kind of um, play, a placeness that has to do with bringing so many different factors into play. Um, in making a project. Mm. I remember one day, I don't remember the day, but I remember the event where this kind of came into focus was going to a lecture by Alistair Rowan, which was called The Irishness of Irish Architecture. And he was speculating about that topic. And he, I remember the theme of his lecture when he was asked to summarise it, was great beginnings. He thought, you know, the characteristic of Irish architecture was that, I, and I remember thinking, you know, taking some sort of warning out of that. In other words, that Irish architecture hadn't never actually actualised. Yeah. <laughs> but in the, uh, in the questions and answers at the end of it, 
I asked him why he hadn't spoken about any modern buildings mm. and why he hadn't spoken about any ring forts. And he said, oh, well, my subject stops, you know, before modernism. And, well, and he said, ring forts, well, that would be archaeology, wouldn't it? Mm. And I remember think at that moment, you know, I mean, I remember thinking, I found the gap, like, there's the gap. Now, my subject is not going to make any definition between ring forts and modernism, you know. So, you know, when you're starting, you have to find which way you'll go up. And, I, and so I think that was very helpful to me. I thought, well, I'm not taking that way. Anecdotally, when Sheila and I left college together for the first time after college, um, getting together and going out, we went off to look at Palladio with the Ackerman book in our mm. bag. And I think that was a revelation for us because we'd had, you know, art history, architectural history lectures, and we'd had studio-based, you know, project-based learning. But when we went to visit, say, the unfinished Villa Saracena or something, mm. we realised, oh, I see, he had to do a site plan. You know, he, I mean, he, Palladio had to sort it out from first principles according to what he had learned. But his, we suddenly thought, OK, we, we can talk to Palladio. You know, we can talk to him. He's dead, we're alive, but we can have a conversation. And I think that was a really important journey yeah. for us. And I'd say we were journey. not alone in having that attitude that I think at that time, you know, schools of architecture taught history as a subject which was about the past. Mm. Or it might even, in our case, in our first few years, it didn't, the, I think the 20th century came in in second or third year, but it wasn't touched on in first year. But, uh, <laughs> but they were definitely different topics. And, you know, people did just think history, it's, you need to know it almost for academic reasons or to be a well-educated person. But you weren't maybe supposed to think that a Palladio building might inspire or influence you in the same way as a Le Corbusier building or something. Mm. But I think the breakthrough, as John says, on that trip, which possibly maybe wasn't the same trip as we went to look at the Corb buildings, but, you know, you, you could suddenly realise, wow, you know, I can be inspired by and have a conversation with Le Corbusier one day and with Palladio the next day, and I don't distinguish between them other than the fact that they existed in two different periods and in two different countries. But, and I think with that, yeah, that's right, we never, we sort of, that was a new beginning, I think, which actually happened to coincide with exactly when we had left our architectural education in UCD behind. But yeah, I mean, back on that thing about teaching, I think it is, I mean, there were five years when we lived in London, we didn't have much contact with schools of architecture. We, we went to all the events in the AA as, as consumers and participants of amazing discussions and lectures. But I think we are... Um, it's very interesting for us that we won the Liverpool competition the week after we finished work yes. in UCD. But particularly because the Liverpool competition was set up with such a strong emphasis on student um, participation in the process of selecting an architect. And I know that they now wish to continue to involve the students. You know, As we progress through the project, they'll want us to present our scheme back to the students You know, as we progress, just so that the students are aware of and involved to some extent in the whole process. Um, so uh, for us it feels like we've left one school of architecture behind and we're, I sent a message to someone on last week to say we've got a new school of architecture to play in. I mean, you know, there's a feeling that in some way, in a, in a different role than when we had in UCD, but the, you know, this will become 
the School of Architecture that we're now engaged in somehow um, the shaping of. Admittedly, it's the physical shaping, but it's interesting to find out how, to what extent the discussion will continue about the relationship between pedagogy and the architecture in which it's to be situated. Um, but it's, is, a, it's just, it was, we just felt very good that we, okay, we still have a school of architecture we can yeah. sort of refer <laughs> into. <laughs> Dream about. Yeah. 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 That feeling, you know, uh, I think it's common to most places where no matter how good one's education, there is, uh, an anger is the wrong word, but there's sort of a poison that certain people carry, a positive one, a hunger to find other things. Mm and a kind of a, not a rejection of, but a sort of a, well, I feel that this was sort of enabling, yeah. but, 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 but there's stuff that's not working yeah. for me here. Yeah. And was that what took you to London? Oh, definitely. Yeah. Definitely. Got to get out of here. Yeah. Absolutely. Like a rocket. Um, <laughs> but I, um, also, there's an amazing thing about um, leaving UCD in the same year that we failed to win the competition to design a new UCD yeah. School of Architecture. Um, a competition we had hoped to win because it seemed to mean so much, you know. And then when you failed to win it, you sort of feel, oh gosh, I've, that, was a, that was a kind of life chance that passed us by, you know, to reshape the school we had shaped intellectually, to give it shape now in architectural space. And then along comes, you know, a smaller prettier, uh, easier project. And and it happens to be the school where um, Dennis Starling went to college, where Colin Rowe was teaching, where Bob Maxwell was studying. I know they're all very, very old um, times, but it means an awful lot to us, I think, to mm. feel that we now have... Uh, a, school, a new a, school of architecture <laughs> to play in. <laughs> but not just a new school, but somehow the school yeah. from which so much of our pedagogical position, I mean, so much of our culture originates in that school. Yeah. I yeah. mean, we, here we are, you know, young people in our prime, <laughs> and we're talking about ideas that were live in that school in Liverpool in the post-war, immediate post-war area, that, and we're still kind of working on those ideas, if you know what I mean. Yeah. So I don't know. Maybe I mean we, I hope it works out because it feels like it's a it's a it's a wonderful um, plaster on the cut, you know. For sure. <laughs> but, oh, <laughs> we might return to the cut, but the, the the just picking up then because we're talking now about Roe and we're talking about Sterling. Well, those are all our. That's our. I'm afraid that's all our. Yeah. yeah. Oh, when you were working for Sterling, it was at that. High point, right, mm. of mm. postmodernist yeah. sterling with yeah. all its yeah. excesses and yeah. joys and frustration. Yeah. What was like? So he was a hero of yours before you went there. Oh, How completely. did you feel about that work? At oh, the time? I was very disapproving. Yeah. I was very dis- I was very disappointed in. <laughs> <laughs> no, seriously, I couldn't believe it. I, I mean, talking about the engine that drives you—that you were saying, you know—that once pushes you on. Like I was totally inspired by Sterling when I was a student. He came to lecture when we were in third year, I think. Yeah, we saw him in that lecture theatre we did our lecture in last season that Emmett Scanlon organised, which was also very emotional. But um, he gave 
a deadpan lecture just showed you know perfect slides of perfect buildings and um after that i can't remember if it was in second year or third year but after that, i decided i go and see his buildings so i mean i went to leicester and i went to cambridge and i went to the flurry when i was in you know in the over the summer as a student and i there's what well, there isn't anything to touch the mm. radicalism of those projects in in the practice that was around us when we were young and doesn't seem to have been anything precedent to that because most of them were structuring you know um policy driven projects and sterling's was form you know it was just glowing crystalline form i was so inspired by it and i also thought it was revolutionary because of the language it was using was let's call it early modernism or russian constructivism and that's what we were you know wallowing in, in our student days we were in the library reading about the constructivists mm. sheila and i that's what we did you know or it wasn't our it wasn't early corp it was you know comparing the section of a veslin project when we were in you know in, in college days because you know that was our part of our protest so then I, when I went to, when I was lucky enough to join Starling's office, and remember, I was the fifth person in the office, so it was a tiny office. And I got, let's say he's the most famous architect in the world, and, yeah. and then he has this shabby little office and, no, and absolutely no work. Um, and then he was on holidays, because my interview was over the phone, and then he was on holidays, and then he arrived in on, let's say, day three or day four of my joining the office and he came and sat beside me on one of these little alto stools and he asked me what I was doing and I showed him what I was doing and I just remember thinking oh god he's 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 kind of lazy looking and he's fat and he's sort of smelly and um I don't know it was a very unimpressive meeting and then when we got to know him better he's quite conservative you know he lives in a conservative way has conservative ideas. Okay. Doesn't read or theorize, you know. So I'd say the first moments of adjustment to Sterling's office were a bit, because I thought someone who thinks like that will be everything and will know everything, and will, will, you know, will drive everything at in all angles at all times. But in fact, Sterling was an architect. Yeah. <laughs> and, and a fucking good one. You know, and, um, <laughs> God Almighty! All he did was draw on his draw on his drawings, you know. Yeah. Then he went home and, um, you know, just arranged his life around himself, and so we learned so much. I learned so much about cutting down on the world revolution uh, and focusing on focusing in on 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 the subject itself mm. directly from from him. I think. Mm. And. Um, it was a huge. It was, talk about second learning. It was a. It was a huge. And then, of course, I also. I, I was only interested in his earlier. What I call his earlier work. If I think about us now, like we don't think about having early work. If you know what I mean. Yeah, it's work. Yeah. Right? It's, it's just work. work. Yeah. But, but he definitely because he was changed. He changed over his work. You know, he just changed over his work. So I was working, on, say, on the courthouse in the Florence competition, and I was trying to develop a you know circulation plan like a plan for a building like that having never done a building like that so i got out the black book uh, which had only been published a few years before i think it was published in 74 so uh, i was there in 76 
So I got out the black book and I looked at the plans for his Sheffield University competition. I was trying to see how the stairs worked and how, you know, how to design a building, if you like, in the Stirling office. And he came into the office and it was late in the evening. He just came over, he just shut the book like that. He said, put that away. I said, Why, what are you looking at that for? We've done all that. Not interested in that. Put that away. Start again. And um, if I, I mean, if I think in our office about a building we designed, say, 10 years ago or 15 years ago, it doesn't feel that far away from me. Yeah. But he was moving on and he wasn't interested in looking back. Mm. Wasn't allowed. Mm. But, I mean, you asked for what you thought about the, 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 what you call the height of his postmodern work. Um, like, I would say, because you moved on then to work on Stuttgart. Yeah. Mm. Um, having worked on the competition then on the building. But I think many of those projects, maybe Stuttgart is a good example, I think. I remember when we finally got to see Stuttgart because John left the office before it was finished, but then we went back, the year it opened, thinking that it was actually really like Leicester, yeah. except for the clothes it was wearing. Yeah. Yeah. And so I think Sterling's strategic sense um, was the same through the later work and the earlier work. Um, maybe particularly the German projects had a kind of um, tightness to them or a sort of edge that that meant they still were part. He managed to bring in this kind of reference, the historical reference, was the ref- reference to materials and things of the past, but somehow to make his own of them in some of those buildings. Um, I don't know, I maybe have the London ones aren't as successful, I think, maybe as the German, as Stuttgart and the, the poetry. Mm. And I worked on the Chlor. Um, which again, there was. I remember those times when we were trying to. There was a you know, sort of wing at the side, which has the um, restoration studios and stuff. Yeah. I remember trying to just make a really clear modernist kind of plan, studio plan out of those, and he just wouldn't put up. I mean, he would come in and say, "No, no, that's too orderly. We can't have that." And people it was just very frustrating. People working at the, on the buildings that he just kept coming in and trying to say, "No, I don't want it to look as clear as that." <laughs> so, I remember when we were doing the. Science Centre, the Wissenschaftszentrum in Berlin, that was the last project I worked on. And what his, his, method, is, his method was to ask people to do things and then he would review them. Okay. So, you, you, you know, he might be three or four people doing three or four different things. And then he would look at, so then he would say, have four, maybe six or seven different options in front of him. And he would review them. And he'd take a little bit of this. Or we thought he was taking a little bit of this and a little bit of that and a little bit of the other. But in the first scheme I did for the Wissenschaft Centrum, he brought me up to the office, his office, and he said, well, very, very nice work, John, very elegant, very orderly plan. We won't be doing anything like that. You know? <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, I want, I want to qualify, because if I said I was disappointed, what I meant was, I mean, I mean that against myself. You know, I mean, I just, I wasn't ready for what I was going to learn from yeah. working with him because it was inspiring to work with him. I just mean, I, I was disappointed to find he wasn't doing the thing I wanted him to be doing. Yeah. But uh, well, Because in your mind, so he, was a, he, was, he was a kind of imaginary hero. He was an imaginary hero, that's right. Yeah. Yeah. Or, um, you know, yeah. you need someone, you know, you're thinking of a through-going person who every part of their existence is the same. But in fact, he was an architect. Yeah, we met, uh, I remember we once we were at the event in our early career, we had a little exhibition at, we were part of in the Pompidou Centre some kind of European architecture and some of the early work that I was doing at the OPW was on show in that exhibition 
And we, we met a fellow in the cafe opposite the Cafe Costia, opposite the Pompidou Centre. Oh, very uh, designer French artist. Yeah, and I met this guy with a beard, you know, that uh, we were introduced to. And I said to him, what do you do? And he said, you know, he said in French, he said, oh, I'm, I'm a philosopher, I'm a poet, I'm an architect, I'm a dreamer, I'm a writer. And I mean, <laughs> well, if you ask Sterling what he did, he'd say, I'm an architect. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Straight so, up. So, so we've gone, we, we, we probably, I don't mean to say that we're, he made us into Philistines, but um, he certainly made us into, he made us look at the bloody architecture. Yeah. Which is an interesting thing then to maybe segue, because what I'm thinking there is, okay, there's you guys looking at Sterling and then having that confrontation. Yeah. Mm. And of course, people have that relationship with you now, right? So yeah. you must have had people arriving into your office, say, familiar with early work, say, when you were about to do the Glucksman or say, yeah. when you were about to do the Lyric or these buildings where the formal languages and yeah. the exploration is being pushed. Mm. And were there moments like that in the team where they were hesitant? <laughs> I don't know. Maybe nobody notices those moments. <laughs> yeah, maybe when you're leading the team, you don't yeah. see it. Yeah. Um, I remember we were doing LSE. Yeah. And we had drawn the first elevations of the LSE, and we just asked someone to blow it up bigger so we could put it on the wall to look at it from a distance. And I remember one of the project architects at the time saying, "Is is this the elevation?" No. <laughs> Um, um, I think that caused that caused a bit of a yeah. bit of a ripple, all right. I think it was we were it was a bank holiday weekend or something. John and I were in working mm. on it, and we suddenly started to pull together this elevation of all these faceted facades. I think there was a bit of shock in the office in the beginning of the next week, and it took people a while to. And they said, "We're not we're not really doing this, are we?" <laughs> so, well, and actually, that's kind of useful because in a way, we also have felt. We're not really doing this, are we? Because we couldn't. It's like we were passing ourselves out. We were ahead. We didn't know really whether it kind of evolved out of the whole business about the building having to um, respond to all these rights to light um, restrictions, yeah. which meant the dimensions were changing on every floor. And we knew we wanted to make something that felt very singular, like a sort of integral thing, rather than a um, a fractured building, fractured in the sense of stepping back or having different planes so making that elevation which also we worked through models so we not us but working with our uh, colleagues through models that it was maybe of the projects we've designed i think that was in a sense the most shocking as it went along to us because mm. we're thinking god what are we doing here we we were feeling our way into the, 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 the thing, thing until it reached a moment where you thought okay but actually, i like that feeling i like that feeling of losing it a bit you know? yeah and saying, I don't know which way this is going, really. Or, don't ask me. Don't ask me which, what what this is going to turn out like. Let's just go this way for a moment and see where it yeah, leads. Yeah, we were yeah. there kind of going, yeah. it is really, this is really ugly, isn't it, what we're drawing? Yeah. But, yeah. but we have to keep pushing at it, because if you just retreat away from that, then you might lose something. Yeah. So you had to kind of take the risk of going with the ugly and pushing it along, because it was coming out of a more abstracted way of thinking about the how to make this building that you have to think okay well, it's turning out to look quite weird but let's just keep pushing it 
not all projects. It's, it's funny, some projects go in a much more methodical way where you, where you sort of have a preconception and what it might turn out like. Or also some projects like schools have so much more typological order to the brief that that, that in itself you kind of know that it has to work out as a society of rooms, as Can would have said, but it's going to be about how to group similar rooms together in different kinds of social ordering. Mm. Whereas a project like the LSE, which was a series of all different sizes and shapes, spaces and rooms in the brief, and then a very constrained site, was always going in a very... It's more singular yeah. and less um, less knowable as a brief. Yeah. Also, we didn't really know what a student centre as a building type was. And that was also... I suppose that was part of the... Um, the adventure of that project was what a, what kind of a thing is a student centre? You know, we didn't know. We know we know what kind of a thing a school is. Like you might want to come up with a totally different kind of school, but that's within an understanding of school, um, and that's interesting too. The projects, you know, there are different there are different questions every time you do a building, and mm. sometimes they are to to work with a known typology and come up with a different way of understanding, and sometimes they're to take a a brief and a site which seems new and different and where you don't know what what kind of thing it is. Mm. It's interesting, from the outside uh, it feels like that's true, like there's a typological exploration which you can see really, really clearly earlier, but it's still there now. And what I'm thinking of there is type as plan um, more than form mm. and then there's this other thing happening where there is and I think analogue architecture was slightly after this time but there's that Miroslav Sheik take on what Rossi meant by analogue where there's a kind of poetic potential in form mm. and that seems to have led to some quite unusual jumps like I'm thinking I guess of say the journey that starts with, say, something that might be well understood, like the children's court, which is an early public building, mm. and is of its time, and then to the Hudson House, where all the same ideas are in place, yeah. but it's both softer and more radical, in a yeah. mm. very radical way to live, right? Yeah. Mm. But also very radical in its making and in its understanding of things, and it also seemed quite gentle and human. Yeah. And mm. I'm kind of, because I know that as students, that project really excited us, the Hudson House we found really, you can do that. Okay, you can do that. Do you know that kind of thing? Well, I'm yeah. sure, I feel sure in my mind that our grown-up life starts with the Hudson House. Yeah, it feels I, that I, way. I think we became the architects we are, or we, you know, we stepped into ourselves as the architects we are when we did that. And it's it's very closely connected to the Ranelagh School. Yeah. Um, and it was done, it's, you know, around, well, the Ranelagh, Ranelagh diagram, what you call the plan type, started in you know when we started started in 88 or 89 wow okay. but 10 years later when we were doing the actual building um, uh, the form of the building developed you know independent of its of its diagram if you like and I know that the form of the building is was greatly helped by the kind of pilot fish of the Hudson House which came the year before and the way we worked on the Hudson House was new to us in the way we worked which was that we just started to explore it, as Sheila would now say, from the inside out. Like we just started to explore it as let it be, let it become itself using uh, sketches and cardboard models. 
so we didn't draw what it looked like. Yeah. We we originated it, you know, from fumbling around with moving this or moving that or it's kind of drawing, you know, designing with your eyes closed, if you know what I mean. We weren't making pictures. Mm. Mm. And um, whereas I think because of our, the low, you know, because of what we're carrying in terms of our learning, um, we had been working with more received language up until yeah, then. Yeah. So um, it, I, I'm absolutely sure in my review of our uh, mm. trajectory that that's that's our breakaway project that's our breakthrough project that's when we became if you like O'Donnell and Toomey you know? yeah yeah yeah, yeah. Tom DePuerre calls O'Donnell and Toomey land you know yeah. it starts with the Hudson House yeah. now I mean our real work you know starts with obviously with the film centre and with the Irish Pavilion that's that's because we did those two projects together and there is no us without those, those two projects yeah. but they're, they're coming to form you know mm. coming to actually having a voice which is a different thing than knowing how than skill, yeah. you know. That, yeah. Uh, but the funny thing about that is, is that happened at a, through a project where we were saying there is no form, there is no voice. It's just growing right. out of it, the, the yeah. ingredients of uh, the place and the site and the being there. Yeah. And maybe by not thinking about form, I suppose it's not quite true to say we didn't think about form, but it is yeah. to an extent and that we really tried to grow the project out of the quite... You know, it's a tiny project in a very ordinary place, but actually there were really extreme conditions yeah. of being in this narrow site behind a building on a street. So it had no front, no public presence, but also there's a big level change on the site, and the site is narrow, and it would have had to be a kind of dark and lumpy house in a way to, to work on those narrow conditions if it was one building. Mm-hmm. So the thing of... And then the, the people. I mean, it is all the ingredients. Everything has to be in place, and it was in place because the clients were amazing, and they were already living there. So they had been testing the site. They were living above their restaurant, but they had this burnt-out shell of a kind of concrete yard in the back that they spent. They had a dining table, and they ate there. And I don't know. Richard was the chef, and he they almost cooked out there because they liked to get out of the kitchen and into the outdoors as much as they could. And this space was ambiguous between being inside and outside. We just thought, okay, well, you guys live like this, you love it. Let's try and make that you still live like this. Let's try and have it, the space you now live in is in the middle of your house, which is the outdoor yard space. And they also were just prepared to go along yeah. with everything because they, they also enjoyed the idea of the adventure and how it would work. And So I think that it is odd that by saying that we don't know what it's going to look like, but we know how it's going to operate as a thing and how it's going to work on the site and... The idea that the three bedrooms are on three floors and with different relationships with the ground and the view over the town leads to a form. Now, on the other hand, Irish tower houses, you know, were in, you know, they were, sure, we had them sure. sort of embedded somewhere in our psyches. That, in a way, in that earlier work that John's talking about, where we were carrying more of a burden of a kind of language. But you know, remember, I mean, if I'm tower about house that, didn't come out. This essay that you started with my yeah, yeah. the resonance I was talking about came much more out of the resonance of the um, what the image communicates which yeah. might be what you're talking when you're referring to how people interpret Rossi's work you know that the building itself it just emanates resonance by its configuration by its profile by its presence yeah um, but what I think what we're more interested in now is the energy that the energy and the idea of the lineaments that make up the thing that come from inside that give it its resonance 
rather than the profile of its form. Yeah. Not that we're not that we're not working with the profile of the form, but we like this idea that it comes from within. You know. Yeah. And I'm, yeah, it's you don't want this is unstable ground to stand on for too long. But it just you pointed out, and it is true that the Hudson houses are very important. And uh, you know, it's a hundred and five hundred and eight square meters, I think, and it's a it's a key project in our career. Yeah, it's interesting, <laughs> but it's it's one of those ones where I mean, different practices evolve, I suppose, the discourse in different ways. But it does feel like partnerships, when they get their voice, it's because yeah. they've sort of been working things out, and then there comes a point where. They're not working it out anymore. They're working together. Do you know what I mean? In a way that's kind of more, yeah. more risks can be taken because it's I think risks are the wrong word, but there's an establish. I suppose it takes a long time to to lay down the slow thinking that mm-hmm. you can then draw on rapidly, yeah. and it's it's something again because I think a lot of our listeners are students or are young practitioners. Mm-hmm. And it is one of those things which is that, yes, and I can remember those moments in my own career, and they do feel like serendipity, but what wasn't serendipitous was the fact that you were ready. That's right, that's Mm. right. And the being ready isn't really... Okay, sometimes that happens to the person who opens their practice in the first two years, Mm. but if you want to make a practice that evolves, it, it typically doesn't, and then it seems to be something that happens recurrently when frustrations build up, or not frustrations... I guess I'm aware of architects who get trapped in the idiom of themselves and the work stops filling us with joy and also you can see stops filling the inhabitants with joy and that kind of thing and that doesn't seem to be something that well your practice certainly isn't interested in but a lot of the more interesting practices tend not to be they tend to be restless beings. Yeah I mean I think it is that we'd hope that there isn't an idiom in the sense that that there isn't a repeated um, motif or yeah. something that happens. So, and I suppose that's what John means when he refers to designing from the inside out. That we really are interested in that idea, which treating inside as a very wide term, meaning much more than just the interior of something, but also from a position of trying to really understand what the ingredients of the project are about its brief and its the people and what exactly they are on, what sort of people they are, what sort of place they might want to occupy, what sort of activities might happen in it, what even the sort of history and what signs or lessons the site and the place can give us. That if you try to grow the project out of its ingredients and outwards, that, that you're not, instead of thinking, oh, it's going to be one of those, you know, I know it's going to be, have a bit sticking out here and it'll be three stories there and two stories here. Um... I think we do like, and there's that thing about the, what's the relationship between um, making things and observing things. That you, in the end, you almost want the thing to feel like it was there all the time, and you just excavated it out of the out of the the air of the site or something. And I suppose that's something. Maybe we, we use the term close noticing, which I think an artist friend of ours talked about about just really looking at things. And you know, when I'm doing little watercolor paintings of stones or mountains or rocks. What I'm trying to do is notice aspects of them that seem to me to speak to me, which is often about form or light or shape. But that's the some way in which that then feeds into your work, and you're not quite sure how it is. But um, compared to say, looking at vernacular, looking at Irish buildings when we first came back, we might 
I don't think we were much, but you might be more literally looking at, you know, its 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 shape, its roof, or its windows, something that now you're trying to notice it in a, in a more um, or sort of um, way. But just what what kind of a thing is it in its absolute essence? Yeah, as if you saw it for the first yeah. time. The word, another word that I was been banding around a bit in the class, sorry, that isn't what the word banding, but anyhow, using a bit is this word, utter, and we often, when we're trying to, between ourselves, say, is, some, is this is something right? We ask, you know, is it utter enough? Is it, and it's, it's a shame as he need, in the poem about Balin Hinch Lake, he talks about the utter mountain mirrored in the lake, which I think he just means that the, just the kind of reduced um, singularity of a thing. Mm, so we, we, yeah. So we try to, well, yes, it's a bit like John talking yeah. years ago in Craft yeah. and Culture about Yoji Yamamoto yeah. and Vim Vendors in their, that film talking about the jacket itself and the shirt mm. itself. So that's utter is a bit like that. It's so sometimes when we're working on a project, it might have a complex brief and be tending to turn into a bit of a complex or complicated form. We might sort of say, okay, is this utter enough? Is it utter? Like, you want it not to just read for people as a sum. People say, oh, I know what that is. You know, it's uh, whatever dance theatre and you can see all the bits of it. You yeah. want it to actually read as a singular thing also where next then you read the bits, I think. Um, like that's, a character. Yeah. It has a character. It has a, you know, in the medieval sense. Yeah, yeah. It, yeah. It, yeah. Is, yeah definitely. It has a, yeah. it has a sense. Well, it, it's self-aware perhaps yeah. or something that it has a, 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 a yeah, I know what you're yeah, talking about. Yeah, I mean that character is a word and the character is an interesting word because it has a few different meanings but um, I think it's a word we use a lot as well about the character of a thing, that a thing, yeah, it's, I, which I suppose is giving a kind of person, almost attributing a personality or a figurative aspect to work, which I think is in there somewhere. Um, and metaphor, like you use metaphors a lot as a partnership in I terms do, of... I, do. I just realised there she was talking about a thing and I think, well, that's another thing, you know, like the pain. The word thing, the, yeah. The pain in this other... Words, you mean words or you mean metaphors? Books. Well, we carry the words into a metaphor. Yeah, yeah, we do. It's how we communicate, actually. We communicate mm-hmm. a lot through, uh, you know, we, change, we exchange our ideas through talking about them. We do an awful lot of talking about things. And, uh, you know, even even building up to talking about things. So we find the English language very helpful. Yeah. Not just, so, you know, not just passing the drawing back and forth. Yeah, the conversation the is... The conversation is yeah. very important to us. It's funny, isn't it? It's a, a lot of what we're talking about here is, say, that first part where you're looking at vernaculars or you're looking at archaeology. And these terms are just mm. terms that we yeah. use because they were all omitted from the canon originally. <laughs> So when yeah. Durand drew it up, you yeah. know, so yeah. the, the, it feels like what people are trying to say is, isn't that beautiful? And somehow the, the, when one says something is beautiful, one's forced to confront that mm. positivity with why is that beautiful? What do you see there? And it feels much more enabling than ugly. Mm. But, but, but that conversation about why is it beautiful? Mm. What do we mean by beauty is somewhere I think that has to be carried through conversation and the eye and the hand because there's an understanding of what it is is operative when we're discussing yeah, these things because right, yeah. it isn't enough to say look at your garden and the dome of the cathedral yeah. beyond isn't that beautiful what is beautiful about yeah. that is it the foreground yeah. background is it the heft of the dome I don't know 
But it is interesting because it is something where in the conversation about Irishness, which is, I think, uh, oh, it's kind of bouncing my around my brain only at the moment because the AOR are doing an edition on Ireland and they were asking, you know, various people to try and uh, just to pin it to the colour. Mm. Uh, and I wrote an essay that was far too long, cut out bits that I talked to Sheila about and others. But the only thing that I felt actually was was that it was the eroded and the contingent and the essential, not the certainty that tended to matter here. Mm. Where, where I'm kind of going with that then is the conversation is inherently a negotiated territory in a way that, say, Sterling's were, mm. I know they weren't Sterling drew them, I know Creer drew them, but the mm. Worms I Axo of Flory mm. yeah. is not, in a way that those buildings did evolve, you can see in a conversational sense between Gowan and Sterling, in mm. a way that is completely ineffable really now, you know, mm. there's two people at work there. And I'm interested in the work now, because I know we're all young and we're all vital and all those sorts of mm. things, but it felt like the UCD competition, and I don't bring it up as a pain, I know it is a pain, <laughs> But it did feel like another turn in the wheel. Mm. The language of the building felt yeah. like it had some of the more rationalist tendencies of work that we discussed. Mm. Yeah. And it had other uh, more poetic formal presences. And it had a kind of circulation diagram carving into itself in a way, in a way that Lyric did. And from the outside, that did feel built or unbuilt, like another turning of the page. Mm. Is that true, or is that...? Um, uh, yeah. Well, in the case of the building... The, the building, the architecture yeah. building, I, I'm sure there's a feeling there that I you know, wanted to teach architecture itself a lesson, if you know what I mean. It was an instructive building about um, nakedness. Um, yeah. Uh, now, inside that nakedness, there's a whole lot of spatial complexity going on, but the idea is that uh, everything is revealed and um, you might have to look at it twice but you, you would find in it that it's simply explaining itself to you as you're in it so it's didactic in that sense and um, and, it, and 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 there was some maybe the second just to move on from that maybe the second thing it wanted was some feeling of uh, you know the sort of civic generosity that's in the early Belfield buildings. You know that's in the Bayhurt clan even. You know yeah. that, that the buildings just—they don't really touch the ground. They—they they pull you in underneath their skirts, or you know they—they're very welcoming. The Belfields campus. Yeah. We mm. found ourselves being very, or even the ideas behind the Belfield campus. You know that sort of um, don't stop at the facade. Come yeah. on in. So we wanted. So I mean, our building there hmm. is you know raised off the ground, floats over the ground, has very very little structure in the way of 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 involving you in its organization it's like it works from underneath to discover we we, we did a lot we did a lot of model studies yeah. a lot of bare bone model studies to develop that project but i think that point about belfield well yeah i mean we obviously felt we were carrying a lot of weight <laughs> yeah. on our shoulders because one was it was a school it was a school of architecture the next one was it was our school of architecture yeah. and then it was also just thinking about Belfield which is a very very difficult place because it's quite a it's a mess 
Um, it's become a mess. It's yeah. an awful mess. Yeah. But the early buildings, we we spent a lot of time. I mean, I you know I really know Belfield now. Like I, before, I had a different understanding of because I know it in terms of its analytical shapes on a map, and I know it as a place to experience. But we were very struck the difference between the early buildings in that sense. So whatever you think of their architecture is actually quite heavy, but they have this open permeability. And every new building has a big surface of either thin stone or thin glass or plastic or whatever the hell it is. And it's making a big facade and it's actually impermeable mm. and actually pretty well universally awful. So we were trying to say, and then they seem to make no sense in their sighting. So we were taking on the sighting of the thing, the whole context of the campus, but also what should the School of Architecture be? And as John said, I think... You know, it did become a bit didactic, but also we did feel, because we're working in a, usually we're working in more urban contexts or more rural contexts. We probably have never really worked in quite a context like that before, Mm. which is a sort of, what type, what kind of thing is a big campus like that? What is its thing? So the building in a way wasn't going to be taking any angled shapes out of anything because it, in a way, as you said, John was saying, was trying to teach architecture a lesson, Mm. but also, in a way, it was trying to teach the campus a lesson yeah. about singularity. Yeah, yeah. Um, and actually, we're very interested in the whole axial thing of the old buildings and the connection down to the sea and the pigeon house chimneys and the way you could simplify. We realised by a few moves you could simplify the geometry and make the campus more um, uh, navigable to someone there, that you just need to do a few things and some weird things. Now you go around in big circles, but if you took out one thing, you could move through Belfield with ease. But you know, we're, but we I mean, we're very well used to losing competitions. I mean, you don't enter a competition unless you know that you can lose it, you know. Yeah, like it, that you will lose it. You will. Well, so yes. in this case, I think to, we felt very strongly that yeah. we were the to- you know, that we were sacrificial lambs. <laughs> I mean, we were the token Irish people in yeah. it. And we knew that the whole ethos of the competition was about having a famous foreigner and make and that using that to reflect fame back onto UCD. You know, they, they were more interested in a name and to... You know, that's what they for were sure, for. for sure. So compared to uh, Liverpool, where we've just been in a competition where the reason they got all these architects to agree to do it for quite a small project is because they had Kenneth Frampton, Johanny Palasma, Michael Wilford and Maria okay. Valshaw as the, as the judges, all of whom are people who all of us would greatly respect and who, for different reasons have historical engagement with that place maybe or the idea of education. Whereas in UCD, it was being judged by a large committee including the two people whose money was going to be used to pay for the building. For sure, um, yeah. And there was no feeling... So in a way, we knew we were... We might be speaking into the void, which was the case, because I think none of them had a clue what our, what our project meant. And the assessment we got back was, your building is not a landmark. Because they were looking for what they called, and they don't know what a landmark is. You realize, thanks, it's a bloody hell if they built that thing in Belfield, it damn well would be a landmark. There's no question. But what but they meant nice was it isn't I, a funny I think shape. We've been so, it's nice to hear you talking about it, if you like, with, as something within our work, because I think we were so much thinking about it as something that. You, you know, we were thinking about it like the building in Belfield. Um, but maybe it's more interesting for us to hear what you think about that. Well, it reminded me of, and a very, not at all like it, but it reminded me of the West Cork entry you did. Yeah. And yeah. It, it seemed that there was, um, say, the West Cork, I could see Sterling there in terms of collage. Mm-hmm. And it felt like that was 
another go at it again yeah, in UCD. Nice. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. yeah. And then I'm kind of excited about that because it feels like, and, and I, I get the pain, but as a disinterested person, I don't feel <laughs> sure, it. I'm yeah, just an architect. Yeah. And I'm kind of interested in these moments because they feel, it, again, it feels like a, it, it feels like another thing and it, it, it won't be this site, but there, it will happen somewhere else. Yeah. Yeah. And, I'm kind of interested in that because it 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 feels uh, where am I going with this? It just feels kind of exciting. Mm. Yeah. Um, it feels exciting and it feels very while known and other at the same time. Mm. Do you know what I mean? That's interesting. Yeah. Yeah. That's nice. That's nice yeah, that is good. That's. I mean, yeah. Yeah. you know, each thing, each competition you do, as you say, you do. We all we all know you do them, knowing that the. Mm, most likely outcome is you're not going to win. So you do them as a piece of work in their own right. But of course you also do them with the conviction that you could win and therefore that it has to be good enough that if you won it would be what you would do. I, that, and maybe you have to just accept that those... That again was a product of its context at every level of the context and that that context you know, may never arise again. I mean, it, because it was very singular and very simple in a way and by being this kind of tall glass shifted form thing none of the contexts that we're working in now and other competitions or in projects have any are the sort of places where you would make a building like that mm-hmm. but obviously it doesn't it's not it just would be interesting to have a chance to work at that scale in that kind of relatively open context but on the other hand you know everything comes out of the context it's in and actually the thing you're doing at the moment is maybe the most interesting thing always I don't know. I think it's interesting. I think it's. I, I, I love the honesty about it. For me, it's it, it's funny. You know, you have practice, and ours is only running twelve years. We've been nearly bankrupt already once, mm. maybe twice during the recession. Yeah. I'm sure your yeah. lineages are very similar. Yes. Yeah. Where we so you go through times of great financial distress, but it's strange you talk to an architect. And they never really remember the year that they earned five thousand euros and the house was nearly foreclosed. Yeah. They remember the building that got away. Yeah. Yeah. And I think there's something in, yeah. in, in in the conversation now about yes, we don't go to we don't go we don't we don't we don't um, win. We don't enter competitions to win. But your practice sort of did also start with winning competitions. That's right. Won the That's right. Temple Bar competition. Yeah. Yeah. And it's an interesting time where if you're trying to make venturers work at the moment, beyond the invited competition or the private commission, it doesn't seem to be possible in other forms now. It doesn't seem to be possible. Maybe I'm wrong, but you're more experienced than I and you've seen the arc of it longer. Well, I know that I know that I know that I would say it's impossible now and to get work for on the basis that works on the basis that work should be given. On the basis um, that it's good work. Yeah, and I think that's a crime against uh, current practice. Our concept of reflective critical practice just doesn't score anywhere, you know, and, in, and so for your generation, it's a huge problem. But I think in, in, at the time of our, um, you know, arising, it wasn't, there was nothing good or better about it there was just much more chance yeah mm. there was no structure like we didn't have any if you like 
structural advantages. There were no Arts Council grants. Yeah, yeah. When we first did the Biennales, there was no money and, you know, nothing was recognised. So we kind of came up through um, invisibility in a way, or took, but found gaps, found gaps, you know, to get through because there was nobody looking. Yeah. Um, so you, we, you, us, have yeah. a problem now because the thing is so structured that it's, it's almost impossible to get through. Universities are now also the same. I'm kind of going, I mean, it's been a sort of an endless conversation in Ireland recently, the last 10 years, a new school, mm. lots of people talking about it again, uh, in the Mendrisio model. Yeah. I'm not pinning you to the collar about it, but it's interesting in the conversation between people who, what would you do if you were to set up a new school? I'm not asking you that you would. I'm saying, how would one go about setting up the ideal school of architecture? Maybe it already exists, but it feels to me that it doesn't. It feels to me that everywhere is, beyond Switzerland and beyond places that are quite wealthy. There was a day when, when we were, early days of our teaching at UCD, I remember this, we went out in the car to look at the Slane Mills. Yeah. There's a mill, if you come down the hill in Slane over the bridge where the trucks are. I know it, yeah. There was a five-storey um, mill building, tea plan. I know it, yeah. And uh, there's five years in the School of Architecture. <laughs> and the Slane Mills was for sale. My father was an engineer in that part of the country and he told me the building was for sale and we went to see it. It was for sale for £5,000. And we went to see it with the idea that we would borrow money and set up a school of architecture. Oh my God. In the Slane Mills. So, <clears throat> yeah. I was going to be, you know, teaching my lesson school of architecture because the mills are, at that time, the mills were what we thought were, you know, there to be learned from. I wonder what would have happened if we had done that. We looked at it seriously. Yeah, we did. But then somehow reality and... Came, came into force. Um, but isn't it interesting, I mean, all of us, the three of us, and what I say all of us, that's all of us, to teach in schools of architecture, you know, we come to, we come to that well, or that village, because, um, of, yeah, the students, the students are there, and, they're, and they come and go, and you develop relationships with the students, and your teaching colleagues are there, and they come and go, and there's a fantastic feeling of cooperation between those. But mainly all of us are there because it's a kind of a safe house for architecture. Mm. And the subject is is the subject, you know, and it allows you to take a day or a week or an afternoon to just pay attention to the subject. Yeah. Um, so, you know, it's even one of those big discussions that goes on about people asking whether there should be crits or not. Oh my God. And I'm saying, what do you mean? What do you mean, should there be crits or not? The crits are the moment when you forget about everything else except architecture, you know. Yeah. And crits aren't about defending students or attacking students or criticizing work or finding the best. They're just moments of when the only thing in the air is what's going on, what's interesting here about architecture. Mm. Yeah. We, we always end with one question, which is a short one, and we maybe have already covered it, I don't know which is that if you had a piece of advice to give somebody embarking on a studying architecture now, what would it be? I think I feel, apropos of what we've just been discussing as well, I think I feel that people should expect that the, that the subject itself 
would interest them, you know, would that they would get involved in the subject itself, um, in the way that people talk about musical appreciation, you know, that you can appreciate architecture, mm. and I I think that there's a wonder, there's an amazing wonder in the experience of buildings, and in the knowledge that is embedded or uh, expressed through those buildings that there's so much to receive and I'm not sure that everybody um, pays enough attention to that you know just mm. just know the subject and it's a bottomless subject you know it's it's a uh, there's so much to know about and learn from so I you know we're talking here we have been talking about schools of architecture as but I mean, I mean, architecture itself, the experience of architecture, yeah. I think is the, certainly it's where uh, I go, you know, where th there, you, there's nothing like going to see things and picking it up from the experience of crossing the threshold of another new building. Um, so I would say, if you're going to study architecture, just, just give the time to getting to know how to respond to, it's almost like a physical muscle, you know, train yourself to learn to see, unpack, put it together again, mm. the, the, um, get to grips with the buildings that, that, you, that you're looking at and that you're passing by. That's great. Sheila? Well, I mean, I suppose in a way following from that, I think that because it is quite tough I think you should probably only pursue it continue with it if you do find that you love it because I think if you're struggling against um, any kind of antipathy to the subject that probably is better to do do something different because I think that you do I, mean, I think you can learn you should use your opportunity when you're a student to learn as much as you can because there is so much to learn because knowledge is power the more that's why I think that it's a good idea to focus in, I mean, it's probably a bit repeating what John said, on the subject itself, because mm -hmm. there's so much to learn. And the more you listen and learn and observe and notice, the better, the more confident you'll be at doing it. Mm. And draw. That's another thing. Yeah. Draw, draw, draw. I mean, draw we, by still, we both draw every day. Yeah. And a day you don't draw isn't a good day. And do you draw at boards or at sketchbooks? We so draw on our board, but we no longer use drawing equipment. But we draw, you know, we draw through overlay, and and we everything starts with a plan. And but we draw, we we draw. We draw on everything. you know on trans on sketch yeah. paper on transparent sketch yeah. paper. So yeah. we're tracing off, yeah. you know, on mostly on A three sheets. So we're not yeah. we're not yeah we're not using the set square and the well occasionally do use set square, but not not really making hard line drawings because they are obviously all done now through computer programs, but we are working very much with the people who are making the computer drawings, but also the early stages of projects, there's a lot of hand pencil drawing done. The reason I ask is because the, the board indicates that there's a place for the drawing to happen. Yeah. You know, it's not a place for the computer, it's a place for the drawing. Yeah. Um, it's just it's one thing that I no, think it's, it's, it's harder right. for students to make space that's for right. in their life because we don't need the technical drawing equipment. That's right. But I do feel the place that all you do there is draw 
I, I think so, yeah. 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 You can draw your notebook. You can draw, obviously, you're drawing in your head anyway. But, but drawing is the, is yeah. the discipline. I but think. you're right about the place, because if there's a place where you only draw, then, you know, you don't... I mean, I think there is a risk that the other things just creep across and you've got bits of laptops and other stuff on top of the place you meant to draw, or reports or something. Yeah. Like QS reports or something. You think, well, that shouldn't be... This place should be... So, in fact, I'm at the moment reorganising my workstation in the office because we moved around last year and I realised my computer, my laptop's at one end of the same table and that's a problem. So I'm building a little shelf behind a small desk for the laptop. Yeah. So that has its place. It's very afternoon, actually. Oh, well. Wow. Right, is it today's Yes, thing, it is. It's so, yeah, we've got... You better let you yeah, get on with that. Thanks, Andrew. So yeah. th- well, thank you both. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to this episode of Register and thanks again to John and Sheila for their generosity with their time and their insights. Uh, I do hope you enjoyed the conversation. Before signing off, uh, again, I'd just like to thank uh, my fellow members of the Register team, Laura Evans, who produces this series with me, and Matt Wells and Matt Phillips, who together with Laura and others are producing a series of books under the Register imprint, and we'll be telling you a little bit more about that uh, in our next episode. I do hope you join us us then. Thank you very much. Bye.